Hey everybody, this is Rita Springer and welcome once again to the Rita Springer podcast. I have been in a series, we did part one, part two called Creative Expression where I've been trying to unpack um, just the realm of the creative as it relates to God as creator and God as an artist. And um, just really trying to get God out of the box of the church and the way the church responds to artistry and almost the fear sometimes that the church has with, with passion and artistry and creativity and, and all of the things that so many of us do that sometimes feel like, well, we can't do that because we're in the church or we can't do that because we're on staff at the church when really creative expression is all over everybody. And it's just how we kind of walk that out and journey in that. And so I wanted part three, I wanted to have a guest on and I couldn't think of anybody better than having um, my little baby biscuit, <laughs> Amanda <laughs> Cook on here with me. So I, I've got Amanda <laughs> Cook um, on this podcast with me. And the reason I, the reason I wanted Amanda here is because I absolutely just love the way she thinks. She always thinks outside the box, but she thinks in this realm of this poet. I think you're a genius, actually. In fact, Justice, you know, that's Justice's first thing he said about you when we were stuck in COVID together <laughs> was that you were just a genius. He thinks you're a genius. But I love the way your brain works. I love the way you see things. It's almost like um, when you talk, I can see a painting being painted by the way mm. that you describe things in the way that you talk. And I've seen that beautiful creative thing on you. Obviously, it's on your gifting as a musician, as a songwriter, as a singer, but it really is in how you relate. And, and I've seen it in how you heal um, and how you've walked out a journey of, of healing for, for yourself. So I'm so glad you're here. And um, I love that um, when she signed into this, she's even written herself as Baby Biscuit. I've always <laughs> called her Baby Biscuit. I don't even know when I started calling you Baby Biscuit. I don't Biscuit, know. But... I, I was I thinking it. about it today, Amanda. You you probably remember this, but um, years ago when I met you, it must have been in Bethel somewhere. I I want to say it was in the back um, of that of the like the mm. control room, really briefly, and we didn't really have a big connection. I think you knew who I was. I obviously knew who you were, but there are a lot of people. I think maybe back there. Maybe it was at a gather, but I think it was mm. in the back control room. And the Lord gave me this word for you. And so I, but I didn't have your number. So I, I text Joe and said, Hey, if I send a word to you, can you give it to Amanda? And Joe Volk was like, just give it to her yourself. So he gives me your number and I sent you this word. And I, I, I'm not the kind of person that has to hear back from people um, at all. But I mean, there was not one thank oh you not one smiley face, not one oh emoji. And I was like, well, that's okay. Maybe she's just that really super introverted. Um, maybe she hates my guts. Maybe, I don't, who knows? And I think it was like a year and a half later, you and I were talking and I was like, did you ever get that word that I sent you? And you were like, you what? You sent me a word? And apparently I, I he'd give me the wrong number. Yeah. And so I don't know who got that word, but whoever somebody got that got word a, was so blessed. Somebody got a <laughs> really encouraging word. <laughs> Someone got a fabulous word. But we also, um, I laugh all the time when I think about it. We got stuck in COVID together. 
Yeah. You were out here in um, Nashville <laughs> working on your Falcon record, mm -hmm. and um, the whole world shut down while you were here. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up in quarantine together. I, I want to say it was almost three months. Was it almost it two months or three while. months? It was a while. <laughs> this because is a long time. <laughs> I was there for a while, and then I ended up. Then I went to Ohio. For a month then you went step. to Ohio, yeah. So mm -hmm. it was kind of toward toward that two month mark. You were going back and forth with mm -hmm. Steph to Ohio. Oh, it was but, great. I have great memes. <laughs> oh my gosh, I I have not eaten that much red meat since. I also haven't eaten that much red meat. <laughs> <laughs> you had a man had gone. She you you were really sick prior to COVID. I love how we're just depleted about me. I mean, I mean, you were the, but you were on like a sack of vitamins. Remember, like you had yeah. like <laughs> two grocery bags full of vitamins that every morning you would come down and whip up a potion. <laughs> yeah, it was really the drink end. your potion. It really was and the end. <laughs> it was the end, the end of the end. And, and you couldn't eat chicken because some chicken dust in your bones or something. And so <laughs> we... We ate so much. All she could eat was red meat. And I was like, oh, red meat's so tough. But I made more red meat than I've ever made in my entire life. Yeah, I probably haven't had, like, red meat in a very... I haven't had red meat in a very long time. Except that's not true. Yeah. I had it yesterday. <laughs> but it was a while before yesterday. It was, that, it was a wild time. I don't know how many, how many Netflix series we went through. I mean, sometimes I mean, it was like three o'clock in the morning. We would be like, okay, it's time to go to bed. We can't watch one more episode. We can't do this every single night. Uh, <laughs> I was so tired of the world. I feel like every night there was like this lullaby as I would go up to my room that Rita would say to me. <laughs> some of the parting words of the evening were, we're all going to die. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? what? It is it's true. true. It's true. It is and true. With that, it's true. I bid you good night. <laughs> those we're were the days die. we're all um, gonna die amanda no i feel very very fortunate to have spent that time with you it was it was and it's precious to me it was it was a it was a wild season but it was it was pretty fun mm -hmm. i mean it was you know that's back when nobody knew what what anything was going to be or how long it was going to last because yeah. you're you're living in la you still are mm -hmm. in la mm -hmm. And I don't know how long it was before you even went back to L.A. It was a couple it just, months. The world, mm -hmm. Yeah, the world just turned into crazy town. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very interesting thing. I want you to, um, I mean, I'm sure that many people know a little bit about you, but can you just kind of refresh us on, I want to say you're Manitoba, right? Mm-hmm. I am. Um, uh, but it's not Winnipeg. You were born and raised in a small farming town. Was it a small farming town? I was born in Winnipeg. And then born in our, Winnipeg. Yes, yes. All my all my details are on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I grew up on a farm south of Winnipeg, about half an hour south I've, of Winnipeg. And your your mom and dad had a farm there. Yes. Right? Yes. I was yeah. I loved loved growing up on a farm. Uh, can you just kind of reminisce a little bit about how you even started in in music? I know that that you you um, you won an award like after your first album or something there, but how did you even get into 
um, writing because you you did piano, right? You mm-hmm. studied piano. Mm-hmm. I studied classical piano. My parents put me in piano lessons when I was little, like, I don't know, five years old or four years old or something like that. And I loved it almost instantaneously. Of course, I didn't love the practice, but I loved the play. I loved to play. It felt like um, the first thing that kind of made sense to me. Not a lot made sense. Not a lot. I, I found it very hard to excavate. And as a sensitive little soul, little person, well, big soul in a tiny body, I found it really almost impossible to bring my inner world out into the, like the real world, I guess. And I mean, they're both real, but I found it hard to merge them. I found it hard to integrate them. And music felt like the bridge between the two. Music felt like the safe space for all of it to um, metabolize for all of it to make sense and and it felt like a deeper sort of understanding when I would sit at the piano it felt like the piano knew me more than I knew it obviously because I feel like it's an instrument that just waits for you to learn it right so um, it's I'm a student of it forever in that way I'm a student of music right. forever and I felt like it it told me the truth so if I would feel if I would get stuck which is what always happens. I would get stuck in my head in a, in like a loop of thinking. Um, and I could feel the anxiety building in my body and I couldn't put my finger on anything. Like as far as where did this begin? How did it start? I don't know. Um, I would find myself often sitting at the piano and just playing until I, I felt some sort of like relief or order or like reinstated peace. Um, but it was really for my own, it felt like for my own sanity. And it still, it feels like medicine to me to this day. To sit at the piano, it feels, music feels like medicine. Um, and it feels like memory because it remembers the things that I forget. So there's a lot that gets like um, remembered through a melody. And when I sit down to play, it, it um, brings, me, brings me back to my senses, I think. So Do you I, think your parents knew like early on that you needed like a musical outlet? Maybe. Um, it's a musical. We have a musical family. My mom and I okay. were talking a lot about this recently about I loved, loved playing piano. I hated almost with the same amount of love that I love playing it. I hated playing it in front of people. I think because I felt like it was telling my secrets. So it felt like yeah. because it held the key to truth that yeah. I couldn't even necessarily articulate yet. If I played it, everyone would know. Um, and it would, and it would feel like they would know as soon as I knew, which felt unfair. Cause I'm like, don't I get to know first in some ways? Um, now of course, growing up, learning the instrument and learning how to, um, like to use the alchemy of my own experience and, and be able to like metabolize things and, and share them through music. That's a, it's a bit different as far as timelines go. There's some things that I do get to know now before I share them with people, but still there's that element of it of, I still approach it, even if it's on a stage, I feel like I approach it as though it has secrets to tell and it's the safest place for me. So I wanna share, that's the, that's, I think that's what's been the, 
I love how Larry's meowing can, in the background. Can you hear Larry? He's so great. My cat. <laughs> um, Larry has Larry has his own his own deal. He has his own. But it still feels that way. As far as like it's this is it's a secret keeper. It's a truth teller. It's a it's a place a safe place to feel everything and to ask questions and to and to commune with the divine and to ask God questions and to pray. <laughs> See, Larry agrees with me. Larry's like, wow. or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's like, Amanda, I'm calling your bluff. You're making all of this up. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, I, I, I loved, I loved playing. I loved music from the from the start. Now, um, like, for you, do you feel like? I, I mean, even the way you articulated that. I think some people would say um, I could hide in music, but it almost sounds like what you're saying is music found me. Like I could find myself when uh-huh. I played the piano. Yeah. And were yes. you like making up songs back then or were you just strictly kind of doing classical music? I studied classical music, but um, it was a bit of both hand. I grew up playing in church. Like I said, my <laughs> I really didn't like playing in front of people so much that like when the first time I played in church, I needed it to not be a big deal. I kind of like snuck up. The piano was off the stage, snuck up, yeah. played my song, and left. And my dad, did, my dad was leading worship, and he didn't like make a big deal out of it, which was kind of the way that I could feel like I could, I could disappear into the music because I wanted to be part of that. Um, but the idea of performing, of being looked at, of being stared at, that just always, always felt unsettling to me. So. I grew up kind of with the, like, I, I wanted, I think I wanted to express my feelings through music. And the more that I learned, the more I learned through classical training, the more options I had to express, you know, to like, to use yeah. those tools to be able to express what I wanted to say. So I didn't start writing lyrics until later, but music was kind of always, I was always, you know, sneaking down to the piano when everybody else was out of the house and improvising and finding my way. Yeah. And were you the only one outside your parents? Like, cause you have a brother, right? Yeah. My brother also was classically trained. Oh, he and, was. Yes. And he was always, ahead, he was always ahead of me in his ability to read music. He's, he was really proficient. Um, it, it was a bit more of a struggle bus for me. I, I, I'm good with ear training, with listening and being able to right. play. Um, but with reading, it took it took a lot more effort, a lot more work for me to do that. And I was always so well. You're still like that. It's <laughs> like, how do you do it? You can read it so fast, and you can. Well, do you feel like you didn't have the retention? Like you couldn't retain it. You had to. But you, if you heard a melody, you could play it right away on the piano. Yeah. Probably, well, I mean, a bit of a, a bit of both. And I'm so glad for my my piano instructors who didn't let me get away with that fully, with relying fully on one side of, you know, the spectrum. Yeah. They, they really, because I would always find the piece that I was supposed to learn in a recording somewhere and then listen to it and then use that in order to actually learn it because I could remember it by hearing it better than I could by just seeing yeah. it, you know? Yeah. If like if a piece of sheet music was put in front of you, could you play? Could you play, or would you have to like learn yeah. it for a couple of days and kind of really? Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to. Have, yeah. 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 Does your brother still play? 
He plays bass. Oh, he plays bass. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So when did you make, I know, you know, I've <clears throat> shared my testimony on this podcast about like the piano almost becoming this pathway to unraveling my soul. Like it mm -hmm. became, it became my way to build the process, not just my spirituality process, mm -hmm. but really it was the open mic to the journey with everything artistry that was in me, everything creative that was in me mm -hmm. kind of was held to that, yeah. to the keys of that piano, not in the practicing or that, like you're saying, like the anxiety almost of cutting your fingernails till they bled. You know, mm -hmm. I had that piece of paper draped over me that I couldn't look at my, my hands when I played. Cause I like to look at my hands cause I'd memorize the page and look at my hands. Mm. And you're such a profound musician. Like I, I think my, my musical theory is almost out the window, but um, when do you feel like you realize this is my life like this? Mm. I want to do something um, with these sounds that come out of this piano with my life. It was probably fairly early on. My mom always selected my music teachers. She was very particular about the teachers that I had. The first teacher that I had, her name is Jane, and she's wonderful. And um, she taught me in um, what we had in Canada, a Yamaha method. It was a group class for kids of learning, mm -hmm. ear training, and sight reading. Mm -hmm. And then she took me through the first couple years of my piano training, and she... She, I think she, there was some kind of conversation that she had with my mom about how she saw something. She saw some sort of intuitive thing in my little inward, you know, personality that was worth mining, was worth like exploring and, and getting educators to come around and support it and help, help me find my way. And I'm so grateful for that conversation because my mom took it really seriously and, um, and really made it her mission to find musical educators who valued um, the mystical side of me, the, yeah. the side of me that wanted to explore God with music and like study classical music so that I could, I could have the tools that I needed to create what I wanted. And so she really set about to find, I had such incredible music educators all the way through who held space for both, for you know, half of my lesson would be dedicated towards the repertoire, and then the other half would be about what worship song do I want to learn today. I remember learning delirious songs by ear, you know, and that was part of my education. It was really important that all of it was included and that it wasn't separate. It was just all included. So I think fairly early on, I remember going to see Jane, who was my first piano teacher. She led worship at a citywide event in, the, in Winnipeg. Um, and I remember feeling, this is where the luxury of being, well, I don't know if it's a luxury, but kind of, of being childlike and not necessarily having all the language for it really serves, it served me. Because it wasn't, um, it was deeper than my own comprehension at the time. It was just this witness. I felt like a witness to something that, that felt like love. It felt like warmth. It felt like acceptance. It felt like it transcended something, but it included all of us. It was the medicine and the magic of music. It was the intention of um, singing about God, about singing about Jesus. And I, I, there wasn't a bunch of religious structure around it. It just was, yeah. whatever this is, I want to do that. And I don't know what it is, but I'm willing to find out. 
that was kind of the approach that I felt. That's still kind of the approach that I feel, yeah, which is yeah. I'm motivated by mystery and I'm motivated by um, curiosity. And so to me, the idea of a story unfolding and something that is like an endless searchable mystery um, intrigues me and it keeps me. And so the merger of where music, because music felt like an endless searchable mystery and God felt like an endless searchable mystery. And so the merger of those two things were clarity. That was like as close to a calling or whatever vocation as you can get, it felt like clarity. And for some, for a kid who just had a lot of clutter in her head, mixed with a lot of imagination, mixed with a lot of time on her hands with, you know, like the, the clarity, the clear space that, that music and prayer, how they, how they held hands and how they like moved together really moved me, moved my, my little, <laughs> my, yeah. my big soul in a tiny body. And I was like, whatever this is, i I would love to figure out what that is and be part of it somehow. So it was a series and it continues to be a series of steps. That's the thing that intrigues me so much about you. That is one of the, my most favorite things about conversing with you because you, I could hear 25 people say that same thing or, you know, I, I took piano lessons. I took guitar lessons. I took this and the way that you, like you say, merge those two things, it doesn't feel religious. It mm. doesn't feel like there was this banner of religion over you to where it was like, this is what you do when you're in the church. It looks like this. You play the piano, you sing the songs, and and you're going to be a worship leader when you grow up because that's just what the Lord's told us you're going to be. And I mean, I've been really very vocal in saying that I've never, in fact, felt very much from the Lord to not ask him what justice will become, mm. but to ask him who he is mm. so that I more encourage wow. him to, to become who God says he is, as opposed to what I think God told me he's supposed to be. So I actually, I'm like so moved by the way you're saying this, because to me, even in the struggle that we go through in life, which, I mean, you had to figure it out. You had to figure life, you still had to figure life out. But the fact that you're able to look back on that, and and it doesn't sound like what you're saying is you felt any pressure or anxiety to become a worship leader now that you were playing the piano, but that you were finding this great mystery being unlocked in the, the, the sound of what you were doing and the way that it made you feel and what it was making you see and sense, and then how prayer and God was making you see and sense these things. Am I, am I grabbing that correctly? Yes. Yes. And I think I, a lot of it, Mr. Rogers has this quote of, um, how anything mentionable is manageable. And so I think music has made most unmentionable things mentionable. Um, for me, which then makes them manageable. And so I've been on a quest because I didn't have language for a lot of emotional development, psychological development, mental development growing up. But I had music, which is, I mean, one of the greatest vibrational ways of actually feeling through the energy of emotions, you know, that we have dance, music, movement, all of it. And so I think it, it was is it that necessity breeds innovation or something like that? Um, 
it, it kind of felt like that. My, my family all very much rely on music. We all rely on music heavily. And, um, and I'm so grateful for that because it gave me a pathway um, to God, too. It gave me a pathway for all the different evolutions and ideations and iterations of what, what my path of following God looks like. And um, it includes all of them. There's a space for all of it. Um, it feels spacious and it feels kind to me. Do you feel like that, you know, you say your parents gave you a passage into that. Do you feel like them not putting it on the table as if um, this is something you need to pick up and do with your life because you're good at it, yeah. but they almost gave you permission to use it however it was going to be used in yeah. your life. Yeah. And because that's what it, it, it sounds like when you talk about that. And I, mean, I remember you telling me this, this story um, about being in your dad's office mm-hmm. and he would just play like just all kinds of music and records. Yeah. And absolutely. Yeah. And it almost is like educated you mm-hmm. in, in genre in, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need like, and growing up in Canada, too, specifically in the prairies, if you I was talking about it, this with friends the other day, if you didn't have a way to be indoors for six months of the year, I mean, you have to find a way to be outdoors in it, too. But because winter is so the landscape is so harsh, it really shapes something. And I think that makes for there's a lot of great artisans from where I come from because they have to find a way to paint uh you know, a, right, a landscape right. for their mental health or to write a landscape for their mental health or play a landscape for their mental health. And so we had we had literature and we had vinyls, you know, and that felt like an endless source of, you know, thrill and, and excitement. And like, there's no limits on your imagination. It can go anywhere with that, with those ingredients, right. you know? So yeah, my, my, my dad's extensive record collection kind of primed everything. I guess it gave me the joy of of music because we needed it. <laughs> because we needed it so much. So yeah, I latched on that... to music. Like I held I held on to songs and I and I still do. You know, they're lifelines. A friend of mine, Jason calls them lifeboats or life rafts, I think. Yeah. And, and I love that cuz I, I felt like yeah, music has always been that. And it's it's not that music with lyrics has always been that it's it's often been like a classical composition has been that because there's things that there are things that the english language just can't get at even it doesn't matter how much we chip away at our our language is still limited but music it's like it it's a language of its own that can transcend all of our right. you know mental understanding into a deeper into a deeper space Do you, this kind of space. brings me to this this brings me to this question, and I'd love for you to unpack it, kind of your version of it, because it does fascinate me in my conversations with the Lord, because I love the way you talk to the Lord. I love the way God talks to you, but I, I also value the fact that you allow space for God to, to talk however he wants to talk. And so mm-hmm. when I when I talk to the Lord about uh, about things he wants to talk about. And he really began to speak to you about like, you know, his creative expression. And he kind of brought it to me from the perspective of, I didn't create the universe in angst. 
Mm. I didn't create the universe because I was having a long, long winter in Winnipeg. You know what mm. I'm saying? It was like, I didn't create that out of, out of a, a deprived or depressed or a, um, a need for me to do it. I created it with every aspect of my being alive and well and fully facing forward. He said, but it's my mercy that I have people find it as a resting place in their agony. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So mm. I, I, I'd love for you to like, to just give me your version of that because that actually, it made so much sense to me from the Lord, but also made me hungrier to do things, not just out of my, the pilgrimage of suffering or, or, or the, the, the plight of seasons changing. Cause even when you talk about the long winters, where you come from, even that is so prophetic to me biblically because he established seasons to start and then to end. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's always a start to something and always an end to something. And there's mm -hmm. an evolving of that constant that we can't say winter, you, you can just linger or winter, we want you over. It has a start point and it has a finish point based on obviously the territory that you live in. Yeah. But it says that God has a beginning to something and he has a, an ending to something, mm -hmm. which means that suffering has to be the same way. Mm -hmm. If he's giving us the pattern of seasons mm -hmm. that's dictating to us, no, 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 no. This doesn't always continue. It always has a start and it always has an end and mm -hmm. you learn and grow through that. How, how, do, how would you unpack that version for you and what it's meant for you in that, because I'm sure that you grew up in some sense of angst because of that, but does it, do you feel like it always has to be there? Or can we get to the point as artists, as creatives, where we really begin creating, not just out of our misery or out of our, our season of delay, but we, we begin to become absolutely beautifully artistic, even in our seasons of resolution and restoration. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Or do you well, think it's human nature to only want to create when we're deprived? No, this is such a good question. I think what comes to mind instantly, I'll just pick the first thought this time. It came to mind. There's a lot of, there are a lot of thoughts. There are a lot of pathways to go down, I think, for this. But I think to embrace a vocation of artistry is to commit to the evolution of your own soul and to keep a record of it. That's what I'm, that's what my commitment is. I don't I mean that's anyone can have their own commitment, make their own decision. My commitment to artistry and is that I'm committed to the evolution of my own soul and keeping a record of it. So I'm in the long arc of life. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there will be projects that are written because of, you know, some sort of thing that I'm working through. There'll be projects that, that feel like grief. There'll be projects that feel like joy. There'll be projects that feel light. There'll be projects that feel a bit darker. It's the full spectrum. And, and I've, I've really committed to telling as best I can, <laughs> um, to keep a record of the transformation, which includes all of it. So I don't want to get stuck in whatever the last 
season was. I want to stay yeah. surrendered to yeah. the seasons. I think that's the point. And growing up in Manitoba, the daughter of a farmer, well, I think the greatest, one of the greatest spiritual um, foundational, you know, things that, that I was gifted was that I, we were surrendered to the seasons quite tangibly, quite literally. There was, yeah, this wasn't just yes. an idea and that it was an agricultural um, you had truth. To be. Yeah. It was reality. And it's yes. it, to this day because my family is farming and it's raining and they're looking for pockets of sunshine to, you know, to get the work done. And it's all surrender. All of its yield. It's it, I learned about being yielded to the seasons by watching it happen day in and day yeah. out. And I think that's why every season actually has its beauty if we're yielded. If not, that's when we really, really, yeah. really suffer. It, because I'm like, oh, I don't want it to be winter. I want it to be summer. I hate winter. And that's fair. I'm, I've had that. I just, you know, I feel like it's finally spring, feel, starting to feel like springtime for me after what felt like a four-year-long winter in some aspects of life. But there yes. are aspects of life often some areas are in winter and some are in spring and some are in summer and some are in fall. It's not all in one necessarily every time. Yeah. But I got to watch my parents, you know, daily surrender. And if, if you don't, it's madness, right? It oh, actually right. creates more. It creates suffering. My dad really employed gratitude. He's employed gratitude. Like I grew up in a grateful house. And so my dad regularly starts with tactile things, pointing out what's right in front of him, um, how grateful he is. My mom does the same thing. They'll just still actually talk about what they're so grateful for regularly, you know. And wow. starting with like the drink in his cup to the people around the table to the, you know, it, it's just it's just amazing to watch him find I, I watched them find something to be grateful for for regardless of the seasons which felt like a compass if it was a really long you know winter or a really yes. long I, winter isn't you know the antithesis of something winter is actually quite beautiful and necessary it actually slows everything down and it causes you to rest it's really interesting I was talking to Melissa Hauser recently about I know this is her, this is her story, but I'm going to share it. I hope that's okay, Mel. Um, <laughs> but we were talking about the difference. I was asking her a few a few questions and just for some advice, and she was telling me the difference between growth and maturity. And this mm. will be the the short version. But she was talking about a tree that was growing outside her window, and it's a tree that they cut branches off regularly for you know their dinner parties and different things for and. She noticed one day that it was growing kind of strange. It was like straight up and she just felt she felt like something was off. So she brought an arborist in and the arborist assessed it and said, so what you have is a tree that's growing, but it's not maturing. And he said, a mature tree is a tree that has established a healthy growth pattern, which includes dying mm. off. Right. Um, yeah. And so, he's, so he told her what she needed to do. He said, what you need to do is cut it in half and leave it for a year. Don't touch it. Wow. Let it mature. And I, <laughs> wow. I, when I tell you, I, there's so many, 
developmental things, you know, that I could track and am tracking with of this feels like it's been pruned all the way down. This feels like it just burnt all the way to the ground. This feels right. like it's maturing now. This feels like there's a garden growing. It's the full embrace of the, we want the resurrection, but in order to have resurrection, you actually have to die. And I think we skirt around that or we use Jesus as an escape all hatch, the time, yeah. right? We're like, oh, he did it so mm-hmm. we don't have to. That's not true. None of us escape it. He showed us how to. So I think that death and resurrection is actually, it's part of, we are, it's part of the natural world. It, our mm-hmm. cells turn over every night while we're sleeping. We're dying and we're resurrecting, whether or not we even agree with it or think that we are or believe in God. We're, it is literally in our DNA, death and resurrection. Right. And so I think that surrendering and yielding to like the ending of things is actually what brings about a new beginning. Letting go actually brings about a new thing, right? Which is the, yeah. that's the hardest thing for me. I think we live in a space right now especially with everything being online where we've, we really caved to our obsession with immortality and wanting everything to last forever. Right. And I think actually some things are just beautiful because they actually are mortal. I think that makes it more beautiful because, you know, because we'll never have a moment like this again. How beautiful is that? That's what makes it precious and wonderful. And every moment is like that. And every moment is full. It's actually full all around us. It's full of promise and potential and, and love and kindness. Even the harshest circumstances, there's something, there is something around us, something that, you know, holds us together, that keeps our heart beating, that keeps our lungs expanding, that that's holding us together. You know what I'm saying? So I think the seasons are like ever changing. The landscape is always changing and finding something that felt like, a center of gravity, the center that holds to me includes all of the seasons. It's not just, you can't live in an endless summer, even though I do, I live in LA, but you can't like your soul. I feel like our soul needs rest. Our soul needs time to recalibrate and it's not meant to produce all the time every day. It's, you know, it needs time to rest. Yeah. You were telling me, um, before, um, we started doing this podcast about the vicar that you, mm-hmm, my um, friend Tim, that you, yeah. And, um, why don't you tell that story just even about the, the cedars of Lebanon, like just the talk I'm about, talking about the genius of my friends. They're <laughs> yeah, all so yeah. incredible. Tim they may, are. I hope I'm not stealing this from Tim may. I, he's doing his own incredible work with all of this. So I'm, I, but I, Tim is one of my favorite people to ask all kinds of spiritual development questions and um, character development questions. He's just, he's so brilliant. And he was teaching me about the cedars of Lebanon the other day and about the simple fact that they take 800 years to develop underground before they produce anything, before they flower, essentially. I hope I'm not getting it wrong. Someone can fact check me and there's going to be somebody on this podcast (laughs) who leaves, there's going to be somebody who leaves a a comment like, actually, it's 799 (laughs) years. (laughs) You can't trust a dang thing Amanda Cook says. Don't trust her. She's a heretic. 799, you heard it from me. But what a relief that is. What a relief that actually like underground development 
under the surface development yeah. is everything. It makes me it makes me think of I mean I would never call myself a gardener, but I I love to be outside and when I started planting jasmine, you know, I just got so frustrated because when you when I first planted jasmine, it just it just stayed there like a bump on a log. It didn't do anything. And and so I finally asked some gardener friend of mine, and I was like, why is this jasmine growing? What do I need to feed it? And she just said, oh, jasmine has a three-year process. Um, the first year that you plant it, it just sleeps. The oh, second year. Isn't that hilarious? We all need more She's naps. Like, <laughs> I know. <laughs> She's like the, the, the first year that vine, and this is, I think, true with a lot of the vines, the climbing vines, but the first year they sleep, the second year they creep, and then the third year they leap. And it was totally true, watching that vine just be dormant for a year, and then the next year it was like itching, kind of creeping, and then by the by year three, it just was all over the, the lattice. Oh, that's incredible. And that's isn't so that incredible. so great? Um, can we- I love the symbolism. Can we please write a song called Sleeping, <laughs> Creeping, and Leaping? Oh I'm sleeping, God. I'm sleeping. <laughs> Don't bother me, I'm sleeping. Oh and then the next verse is like, I'm creeping, I'm creeping. <laughs> just watch me, I'm creeping. <laughs> and then the third one is just, wow, you're really in for a treat. I'm leaping, I'm leaving. Like, key change? We have to go up. We have to jump the octave, you know what I mean? <laughs> She's oh leaping. God. We're leaping. <laughs> Can't wait for I the love fact that. check on that one. <laughs> just oh, my gosh. Oh, there's going to be so many comments. Um, but I love the fact that you're, I mean, I, I, to me, when I'm listening to you even talk about the symbolism of farming and agriculture, you growing up in that, I don't know, maybe it's not, I, I can't even fully articulate to me the beauty of that. Like just the beauty of that artistry alone that you, you, that that wouldn't be missed or lost on you, that that's part of the story. I, I've, you've it's said amazing. it publicly. It is amazing. I, and I do wish I wish that I could keep a plant alive. <laughs> also, that's the irony of all of this. <laughs> the irony is I use I use farming language, agriculture, and then you look at my fiddle leaf <laughs> tree and you're like, mm. <laughs> but really, is it working for you? I'm sorry. Anyways. <laughs> I just had to laugh about that. I was like, God, help me. Well, you're just not home long enough to water them. <laughs> yeah, sure. We'll go with that. We'll go with that, Rita. Well, you talk about like staying in the mystery. Like you you use the word mystery in your songs. <laughs> and when I've talked to you, it's it's a um it's actually you, the way you use it, the terms that you use it is like it's this absolutely stunning thing this beautiful thing in in the word mystery and i remember thinking when you first started talking to me and used that language that i thought man i i never classified the mysterious as anything but a spooky word that's unidentifiable mm. but the way that you talked about it 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 made it feel like it was the most beautiful thing to search out you know, mm -hmm. in, in the process of even, um, the process of your own journey of healing mm -hmm. from battered seasons mm -hmm. and, and that, it, that, that you can't fear, um, 
the process because it's really the process where you gain all the exposure to your healing. Mm -hmm. And, and that's like, that's, that's one thing I marvel about you in that, that I think is part of your poetry because the mystery, <clears throat> the mystery that you talk about usually ends up in some poetic form mm -hmm. of your life's kind of journey, which I think is, I just think it's, I, I think it's genius. That's why I, I, I would use the word genius on you because of the way that you're able to put on paper and play with the sounds that you play. Because, you know, some people can play the piano, Amanda, and they just sound like they're playing the piano. You know, people have said some things about me when I play. There's a certain way that I touch the keys or play mm -hmm. the keys. Um, because to me, it's a connection of both, like you were talking about, both, both mm -hmm. soul and Mm -hmm. But when you play the piano, it's almost intoxicating. Like it's almost like this, this driving poem that you can't, mm. you can't fully articulate, but it's taking you on this journey someplace. And I don't know that that's a learned behavior. Do you think that, that, that mm. stuff that comes out of you, that sound, it sounds mysterious. It sounds mm. very mysterious. Do you think that, 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 that is just part of your, connective soul with that? Or do you think that you've had to um, find that sound along the way? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's an excellent question. Um, I think very rare. I, I don't remember a single time that playing music has felt like playing notes, like playing a song, playing a melody, playing, you know, it always has felt like playing my questions or playing thoughts or playing hopes or playing fears or playing yeah. the answers that I feel like I'm, you know, or the not even answers necessarily, but the dialogue I'm having with God or it, it feels like that to me, I think. And the tension and the release of music that there, you don't have beauty without tension. You just don't, you don't have music without tension. Mm you know, yeah. um, in the strings. And so I think that's always kind of, because it's been the place that I go to that feels the most like home and feels the most mm -hmm. like this, like, like, like heaven, like the space where I can be and belong, I guess. I, yeah, I, I don't think there's ever been a time where it just, it, where it just feels like it's, it's, it's notes, you know? Right. Um, maybe when I was practicing scales, could have been. Yeah. But I think even then, there was probably some sort of imaginative thing involved of, like, envisioning it as a ladder or envisioning it, you know, as a, as a map. Like, I felt like scales felt like maps, you know? Because um, they gave me access to different keys which led me to different lands which led me to language with which led me to poems which led me to clarity in the middle of all this mystery like I feel like the curiosity <clears throat> somewhere along the line there needs to be some sort of anchoring points you know and for me the the clarity where my curiosity and the mystery of God meet there's there's some sort of clarity and for me that that is in um, the compass of Jesus, the compass of the Christ, you know, of I'm not just lost without a leader, 
like a good a good leader a good shepherd a good friend I have some there is someone that I direct all my questions to there is a dialogue you know Mm -hmm. that grounds the whole thing because I think if it's just mystery for me the way I'm wired if it's just mystery I can end up floating (laughs) um and I I start to feel really anxious because I'm like where's the where's the tether like we need gravity as much as I love to fly like there's something yeah. really delicious about being on the ground. And so yeah. I think both and like the music has given me the the space for both of those things, you know, and to kind of collect, collect what happens when those things meet. Yeah. And <clears throat> so when you walk into a room, wherever you walk into a room, do you believe that you walk into the room as as everything that you are, the artist, the creative, the girl that communes with God and the girl that, um, you know, writes a completely different genre of songs. Like, uh, I want to kind of talk and segue a little bit into just how Falcon started, because Mm -hmm. to me, that was a whole other creative force for you. You're in this kind of medium with the church and it has all its rules and regulations. You're connected to the mystery of Christ. You're trying to mature in all of these things. You've got life hitting you um, right and left. You, you're being exposed on platforms um, from this girl that used to play the piano. And then all of a sudden you end up in this collective with Bethel. And then you're immersed into the stage. Um, you get married. You're on. You're, you're now you're married. You're you're an artist, you're a worship leader and known for all these things. How do you keep your identity in this place of, of God having ownership of all of it? But you, I don't even know if it's like the surrender, like, cause surrender is a big thing. It's had to be a big thing for you in the last four years, Mm -hmm. just surrendering almost everything, Mm -hmm. every idea you had, every Mm -hmm. identity you ever thought you you had almost, and not to start new, but to start from a different approach. You know, another thing you've said um, from the stage is, uh, and you prayed from the stage that I thought, wow, that's so re- relevant that she'd said that was you talk about a return to innocence. Mm. And I, I, I feel like I've watched you almost have to return to a place about you mm. and regain your composure and redefine yourself to reemerge. It is, is that what Falcon was for you or was Falcon just another pen in the, in your pocket of artistry that you just whipped out because you have the gifting and the talent to do it. Oh boy. I think Falcon for me felt it was just what was next. I feel very committed to writing whatever wants to be written. And I can tell very quickly if it feels like BS. So Right, right, right. It's about hitting it's about recording what what actually is and not just not just what I hope to be true which I think uh, there will always be that component there's always that open like you know hands up kind of posture of 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 hope but I think being able to articulate grief being able to articulate 
the ending of a marriage, being able to articulate um, love and longing and heartache in a medium that feels gentle and inclusive and kind, yeah. which is music. That was always going to be part of, of my path. What I felt obedient to, if I'm going to use the word obedient, was the vocation of, of an artist that I'm devoted to the development of my soul. I'm devoted to the lordship of Jesus yeah. in, in my life. How that plays out, I'm not interested in being a public figure. I'm not interested in making my faith public even. I, that there, was a, yeah. there was a certain kind of place that I got to where I realized, is, is making one's faith public more meaningful than a private faith lived out over the span of a lifetime yeah and learning how to love yeah. god and yourself and your neighbor and i i just don't think that being public about one's faith makes it more true i think yeah it's i think there's t time yeah. and a season for everything this is just me i don't mean to project this on anybody else this is just talking about my own soul and tracking where my own soul has you know been over the last number of years but I think, first of all, being from Canada, as far as the church goes, it's it's a minority in Canada. It's not a power stance in the way of affecting and changing policy and culture in that sort of way. I grew up in a way of quietly working out the inner workings of our faith day in and day out. Got right? It. That was that was the trajectory that I was given, which yeah. is so beautiful and I'm grateful for. Yeah. So coming to America was so fascinating to me because I I was writing songs and I wanted I always wanted to be able to express whatever I felt was like inexpressible. Like I was looking for language to articulate heartache, love, longing, prayers, hopes, fears, dreams, you know, like what following Jesus felt like as an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 26-year-old. Um yeah. And so coming to America and realizing that there's this whole cultural space for that was so mind-blowing to me huh. that, that there's a space for this. There, there's a giant group of people here who want to sing these songs or listen to these songs or be you know, part of this thing. And, I, and it just felt so wild to me. It still is wild to me, you know? Yeah. Um, in doing that, I also realized that it can kind of be tough to, to stay connected to my own compass and keep track of my own because soul and to the original intent, which was to keep a record of right. my evolution as a person, my growth as a person, my maturing as a person, as an artist. So locking into a certain identity because we, we end up putting on all these identities even like that's if we're going to use a title of worship leader I'm like what is that <laughs> like I still don't right. know it's the right, right, I do right. I, I get we have we have visual pictures there's scripture for it we have compasses for it I'm not trying to diminish it by any any stretch yeah. of the imagination but I think in my 20s which you know I, there were a lot of developmental things that were probably a bit late. They were they were latent, right? So I was still on the hunt for who am I as a person, you know? 
as I'm getting married, as I'm sharing music with the world, as the world is suddenly responding back to me going, yeah, we love your music. We love this music that you make. We love this music, not necessarily your music. We love this music. And while I feel like I can be in the public service of that and I want to, what I want more is to be true about my public service and in the offering that I give the world, which is highly vulnerable, very costly and terrifying still to this day, you know, to realize too, that here genres feel like they have boundaries. I didn't grow up in that idea with music where something was sacred and something was secular. And now we've crossed over into this space and we're crossing back. There's music for every day of the week and there's music for every emotion you feel. And there's music for every experience you have. Right. And coming to into this space where there was suddenly a genre for, for a genre, your yeah. faith, for yeah. faith. And, faith. And, there, and there were all these unwritten rules that I didn't know in America that, and in any, any religious culture. Because I grew up in a religious culture that's entirely different, that we haven't, we, haven't, we haven't talked really a whole lot about, and that's a, we don't need to. But my, my process with it was that suddenly I felt like the cart was being put in front of the horse because my development as a person was um, I'm trying to work out my 20s. I'm, you know, heading into my 30s. I'm being handed a a certain space um, with with people on the other side of that that are beautiful and wonderful. I also was trying to figure out because I'm public about this part of my life, do I have to be public about every part of my life? Does that suddenly come with the territory now? Is that what truth telling looks like? Um, Or, or is my soul allowed to have like an underground root system that isn't being dug at or picked at or picked apart or, you know what I'm saying? There's a gardener who's tending to it, but you know, some things actually have to stay underground. And this is a very long thought process. Um, But I think the unfolding of it, all of it was so incredible and so necessary. Like, um, and being able to pump the brakes, being able to go, I think I need to go away. I think I need to figure some of this out. I think I need to, like there, there was a necessity. There was also just a it felt like dying. It felt that that probably sounds like a disservice to anyone who actually has had a brush with death. But what I mean is everyone will understand when certain things either you're needing to let go of or they're being taken away from you or they're ending or whatever. Anyone who's yeah. experienced any sort of measure of that in whatever way, shape or form, it does feel like right. a measure of like, <gasps> like um, yeah. and any attachment that I had to it, any identity that I had attached to it went with it. Right. So, like I, I there I went through a, quite an era of of losing. <laughs> just felt like a total loser, just losing. And twenty twenty was lost for everybody. So yeah, everyone has experienced deep, deep loss, and I would say deeper loss than I have. But I also none of us can compare losses. There's no there's no such thing. It's just all of us will experience it. All of us will experience some measure of loss, grief. And then, and to learn how to grieve, that is, that is holy to learn how to grieve. It's not, I remember when I was thinking as I was starting my grieving process through the ending of my marriage that like, okay, I just got to get through the grief 
and then life will be good again. That's just the dualistic thinking of, oh, no, this is not about that. This is about learning how to grieve, how to let go, how to surrender, yeah. how to yield, how to die. And on the other side of that, like there's there's a timeline that I I really struggled with. It was part of my the bargaining, right? Of okay, like give myself yeah. a year, give myself six months, give me some, yeah. whatever. You can put yeah. whatever timeline yeah. you want want on it. But then my brain gets more um, sidelined by the timeline and attached to outcomes when really it's yes. just asking me to surrender to it completely including my idea of a timeline um and rather see things the word came to me as thresholds to see things as a series of thresholds that yeah. i would keep chipping away at at what was right in front of me to the tending of my own soul and then suddenly i would find myself at a threshold however many months in a year in two years in whatever that would be we're way off topic of music now but i think we're in a no, good space I just, <clears throat> it's I just love that <clears throat> i think it's been I've been I've been mining from all the different iterations and all the different evolutions of the ages that I've been and the spaces that I've lived yeah. in and the places I've been and the people that I've been in relationship with. There's a gift in everything. I think that's the biggest thing that I sit with now. There's there is a gift in absolutely all of it. And yeah, I don't know where to I don't there's, there's no like it, ending phrase to that. <laughs> well there's it 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 it's it's kind of a beautiful um, way to see the inheritance of gratitude when you say, you know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like you, you talk about your parents being understanding gratitude and speaking out gratitude and you could tell it's become your inheritance. Yeah. Because and I think, you, the, the way yeah. you care for your, your soul. Yeah. I think like going back to the Falcon thing, which is actually the question that you started with. I think I just, I need, I needed to, stay true to what was next um and to yeah. know that i was making music because it was in me to make and and that i was writing because of something that was because i was keeping a record um that it was coming from the inside out right um yeah. because there's a whole industry side to the art mm -hmm. that we we do and that we make it um well you and i talked about that almost the technical side of it too, when I think I remember telling you, like, it doesn't matter how old you get and you release a, you release a record, you know, you release a new project that there's not, you know, all of the, all of the beautiful process you go through in the midst of, of, of laying down those chords and those lyrics yeah. and whether it's the agony you you're penning that yeah. you walk through. I mean, when I, when I, when, when we were kind of locked in in lockdown and you would come home from some of those meetings in in kind of trying to complete the songs on Falcon, there was such a process in, in what you were writing in Falcon to me that was just, I mean, I remember we would sit outside, you know, when they allowed some people to come over, you know, when nobody had COVID. <laughs> and we would analyze your songs, like we listened to those first songs. Mm -hmm. And I, I was so stunned i think it's when i became such a fan of you internally because i was so stunned by the way that you honored um and the way that you you um you wrote your poetry down in the in the process of that particular record 
it being, you know, for you in what you're saying, the same thing you've always done, but here it, there's a genre for it. So now you have to release it under a different thing and a different thing and a different mm -hmm. name. And you got to do this. And there's rules and regulations because somebody wrote the rule book and we still can't find out who that person is, but somebody wrote it and we all follow along with it. But you were the honesty of, of, for me, as a listener, listen, looking at those songs and listening to those songs and hearing your honesty, it, it shredded me in the same way that pieces did. Mm. It just was, in, it was in a different context. Mm -hmm. So I, I as, as, as an artist or a poet or a wordsmith listening to that, connecting with it on such a vulnerable level i i've never been through a breakup like that i've never had to walk some of that stuff out you know there's a song on that falcon record that i i listen to all the time and it's the outside my body song mm -hmm. and it just there's something so provoking about because i i had these conversations with you and i talked with you about of that and i i just i guess the experience to me was so real because i was getting it straight from you but there's so there's such a beautiful thing, Amanda, that you have in that creative swirl that's on you, where whether you're in agony or whether you're in, you know, whether you're doing it for the people that love what you do or what you're giving them, there is such a um, a stunning, vulnerable honor to your own soul and to everything your soul's been affected by, mm -hmm. even the the humiliation. And the vi victimization that, that a lot of us could say, yeah, that was my season. But the way that you honored, that really was, to me, just literally stunning. I ask you kind of before, and too, I, I love this story that you tell. I've thought about it a gazillion times. You were in England, <laughs> and you must have been having a distressful night. Yes. And you, you asked the Lord, yeah, can you just kind of tell, can you can tell that story? I just I think of what I can story. tell about this story that I want to share with the world because it is, it is one of my favorite God moments. But in a universal sense of it, I'll just, I'll just share. I was in the middle of, of critical decision-making um, in, in the grief process of divorce. And mm -hmm. I had one, I had a very restless night staying with friends in England. I had a very, very restless night tossing and turning all night. And about four in the morning, I felt that prompting that was otherly. I knew it had to be God because it was just so kind and it was so gentle and it was so, it was radically still and peaceful. The invitation to, go outside and look at the moon. But it came as an invitation of, why don't you come outside, not go. Why don't you come outside and look at the moon? Yeah. And and I had some choice words in the, in my dialogue internally with that voice yeah. Yeah. that probably wouldn't be suitable for young ears. Which, you know, to the effect was, you know, you could keep the moon. I would, I would like this instead. Um, right. That's the, that's the PG version. Um, and then, you know, waited a few minutes and then felt the same, the same okay. prompt. Yeah. Yeah. 
I got out of bed and I went downstairs and I made some coffee and I opened the door and I stood outside, you know, feeling like a, like ridiculous. And I just looked up at the moon mm-hmm. and tough to say, but I, it was that warmth that I felt when I was like seven years old and I, or eight years old and went to go to that worship night in Winnipeg and couldn't find language mm. for it, but I felt that warmth and that sense of belonging and yeah. love and everything's going to be okay. And God's got us and like God's much better than we all know him to be. And we're so loved. It was just all, it was, it was all of that unknowing that came back to me, but that trusting that came back to me, I think in that moment. And, yeah. um, and it felt like, yeah, it felt like, okay okay trust yeah and i i mean never i'm kind of obsessed with lunar <laughs> schedules and eclipses yeah, and yeah. full moons now ever since but it's just been i mean it's just there are all these little markers there's all these things that that help me because i get so stuck in my head and i forget to look up at the sky you know or i forget to yeah, look yeah. outside of the story that's being told in my head um it was exactly what I needed at the time and it's exactly yeah. what I've needed ever since it's yeah it's there's so much in the natural that. world that that's just that you know yesterday for fourth of July went with friends um to Orange County and we went for a walk after dinner went to and we ended up at a playground a bunch of us adults just like swinging on the swing set and um and then we looked up and there were there were two falcons that were like yeah. circling and just, I've never been so close to one. Um, just sitting on the branches right up above us. And we just, it there was just something about going for a walk and being on a swing set and staring at birds together. And, and yeah. that, that took us all outside of our, our stories in our head for a second. Yeah. And we all marveled at something that was, just happening one of one of us said something to the effect of like they're just they're just doing it they're just out here being falcons they're just being birds and they would do it whether we were here or not like whether we noticed or not they would just be beautiful they'd be floating they'd be flying they'd be you know they would just be exactly what they were and i was like oh man how many things like it's not necessarily like how many things do I miss it's just like how many things are there to discover in every moment you know if I just look up for a minute you know yeah which which kind of brings me back to the whole statement of just how beautiful and stunning was that first rendition of create creation when he created a canopy and told all of those things just to keep doing what they're doing, you know? And the yeah. only people that deviate and make it complicated is the sixth day, mm. you know? So that's, I, I don't know, it's just so powerful, the the simplicity of, of what actually is more purposeful and then gratitude, you know, the inheritance of just being thankful for, for what's there. Do you think that um, that you look for God's permission, or do you think God's like just gives you the permission automatically? Oh boy, I think we're freer than we think we are, for sure. 
which is a scary yeah. concept for me. Um, it's also the best concept for me. I think yeah. Jesus is forever giving people their power back. I can get, I, love I can that get line. stuck. Jesus get is forever stuck. giving people their power back. Yeah. I mean, he's so great, Amanda. The, the stories that we have of him, it's, we watch him ask people for what they need or what they want. He causes right, us to right. confront exactly what, what is, what's right in front of us, you know, or right. reality. Reality is like the basis to me of, mm -hmm. of connection and of any relationship. And so yeah. I think I, I want to do such a big statement. I feel like I need to keep it private, but I, the desire is to do what feels truthful and what feels helpful and what feels healing. And the compulsion is to go to the piano and write songs that feel like clarity and medicine and hope and, and that include despair and disappointment and fear because I don't yeah. think you have one without the other. I just think mm -hmm. like, I mean, you wouldn't need bravery if you didn't have fear. And I think being afraid right. is part of being human. So I think, yeah, it's such an interesting question because like I do want permission. I do. I think what I've, what I've struggled with my entire life is figuring out who gives the ultimate permission. Like who, who am right, I at the right. mercy of? Right. And yeah. whatever we feel like we're at the mercy of is whatever will, will govern our steps. So putting myself in the path of Jesus and, and having, and reminding my soul, like coming back to him over and over and, and actually studying and learning and hearing, you know, how kind he really is and about the mercy it's, it is the mercy. It's the all encompassing mercy, you know, that transcends yeah. all the other gods, all the other lesser gods in my mind that I have put myself at the mercy of, whether it's the opinions of people, whether it's the ridicule, whether it's, you know, what someone thinks that I should do or shouldn't do. It's are, the, are there things that you feel like that you've talked to the Lord about it? The Lord's talked to you about, um, that you haven't even yet done or, or yes. been willing to dream for? Yes, absolutely. Things that and, I feel terrified and, to do. <laughs> and things yeah, that okay, just okay, feel yeah. like they require, they require me growing up into myself and, and embodying something, embodying risk in a different way, embodying courage in a different way. And it's but always been a series that of you'll steps. get there. I mean, like, do you have, do you carry yourself in a manner? It's like, I'm not there yet, but I'm going to get there. I think I'm starting to think that thought, but I can't say that that's been the normal. Thought. Yeah. I think it's. What do you, why do you think, why do you think people stall there sometimes? <laughs> is it, is it fear? Maybe. I have no idea why anyone else would, but I think for me, it just always feels risky to offer I think what it is is that it's always felt because my ego has been involved um as we all we all have ego yeah but the way my ego really gets entangled is that if I give an offering to the world um let's say just an artistic piece of something and I'm waiting for their response that's not yeah that's not a true offering that's me looking for validation that I belong to something right. and that I matter so if that's the loop, I'm always going to be disappointed. 
there's there is no one who can satisfy that question in me except for the Christ who sees me. And so I think for me that what I want to what I want to practice is being able to offer, give generously something that I don't need. I don't need a certain response for. I want a certain response for, but I don't need it in a certain. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I, and I, and I'm, I often, you know, because as artists, we all, we all know exactly what you're saying with, with that validation. You can't, it's like that thing I was just saying, like, it doesn't matter how old you are. You put, you put, out into the public something that you've just done it's like a baby that you let everybody see <laughs> and it's, it, it is traumatic even you can have all the belief behind it in uh-huh, the world uh-huh. but if somebody comments or somebody says something or doesn't do this or doesn't mm. do that it somehow comes back ricochets back on you as mm. as you're a failure and you're not mm-hmm. validated which is ridiculous mm-hmm. but it's it's that human response to it do you think that Because I kind of believe this. I believe because that's such a human cycle Mm -hmm. that we'll always always need validation because isn't it part of our flesh to want to be validated? And then isn't it part of um, God's understanding in scripture that he knows we need the validation? Yeah, I think we all need validation. Yeah, he knows we need the pat on the back and the, Mm -hmm. you know, good on you and you did good. But is it then more so that let that cycle come with, with that thing that circles around us, but that our, our deep no longer stalls at that point where the validation isn't what we, we thought it was going to be, but our deep presses, presses forward. And is like, it doesn't matter to me. It was all amazing. And I don't have, that record playing constantly. And that's basically what you're saying, right? I think I just want to heal the stories in my head because I don't think I'll ever reach a day where it doesn't feel vulnerable or costly because I think that is what makes it matter. It's that I'm offering something in my heart. And that's always going to feel like being a kid on a playground asking another kid, do you want to be friends? And letting them actually decide if they want to be friends. Because that's true friendship. Both two people deciding they want to be in something together. It's not through coercion or manipulation that true friendship happens. And so what I want to heal is the story in my head of rejection. And of, um, like, I want to heal whatever I make it mean. That if people didn't like this record, it means that I should quit and I'm a failure and it's not as good and blah, blah, blah. All the stories that go through my head. All the stories. And there there were countless stories in my head um, surrounding ideas of, of... faith and of marriage and of family and of what it what all those things mean like we all make everything mean something that's the narrator in our head that's just constantly talking it's like a roommate that just does not shut up and so I I'm learning how to how to listen to those stories with curiosity and question whether or not they're actually true because our survival brain is always looking out for us it's always my survival brain catastrophizes everything. It's just like, we must be prepared for the worst. We must oh, prepare. You know what I mean? It's like, you're going to be Absolutely. rejected. Everyone's going to hate you. Absolutely. You're going to die alone. Like, it's just, yes. you know what I yeah. mean? Everybody's going to die, Amanda. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually feels inevitable more than it feels scary. <laughs> 
That actually feels, I was writing an essay about it the other day. I was like, you know, the inevitability of death feels comforting because it's one less decision I have to make. I don't get to decide anything about it. Anyways, that's a whole other topic. But I just think about the only thing that I actually have a measure of control over is my own stories in my head. I have zero control over anything else that happens in the world. And so I think that that is the goal is to learn and to to love those parts of me that still are looking or still believe like ahead of time that I'm rejectable or not lovable or whatever the story would be. These are just examples of after this podcast, everyone's going to go to my page and be like, no, Amanda, you love really. (laughs) (laughs) What if they do just receive it? Uh, You know, the overcompensation. They're like, Amanda's in a bad place. Like people... (laughs) People are going to start leaving messages, DMs. Oh, I'm just joking. But you know what I mean? I'm just like, I well, that do, feels, I do. That, you know what that totally feels like I mean. is, it feels like abundance, it feels like generosity, and it feels like truly living. Because I've had those, those little glimpses, I've had those pockets, those moments where I'm like, oh, I engaged in this space where my identity, my worthiness wasn't up for grabs it wasn't up for debate and because it wasn't up for debate that's settled I walked into a room and it's settled and all I saw were a bunch of new potential friends and and they get to decide based on the stories in their own head whether they want to be friends with me this is really I'm really going to get a bunch of friends texting me after this you're like no we love you (laughs) that's not the point the point is looking at the world we all project our stories onto the world, onto every relationship, every person we meet, we're always projecting like a screen, all of the stories in our head that are formed by the time we're 12 about God, ourselves, and everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my job of working out my life is to slowly and deliberately become conscious of all those narratives and storylines in my head that are dictating things and trying to make things mean things when really... Like, and if we get to that place of consciousness, then we can actually change the way we think. Thank you, Dr. Caroline Leaf. Because we can (laughs) actually, seriously, we can start to actually get curious about that thought pattern and go, wait a second, that's a closed loop. And that was handed to me through an unconscious cycle in my childhood. Might be time to change it because it causes me harm. And so then we get to practice a new thought. You know, and it takes 63 days for something to actually become embedded in our subconscious mind, which is where all of our decisions are made. And so that is like the goal for me is to learn those, to be able to love those places in me that are that are looking for that, you know, the the validation that we all need, the acceptance that we all need. I know. I know for me, um, this is years ago, but in my self-love um, one of my self-love conversations with the Lord, he just said to me, um, you know, um, whenever you enter into a room, I gasp and grab my heart. And I, I saw that oh image gosh. in my head. And, and I just, it's so, it's so oh washed over gosh. me that I'm like, 
It doesn't matter what anybody thinks because when I walk into a room, he he gasps and he oh grabs his heart. Oh my gosh, Rita. You know why saying? don't we just so, start the podcast <laughs> with that? Say that <laughs> sentence. We could have saved ourselves hours. No, I'm just kidding. No, that is incredible. It's just, I think that's how, that's just what's, what has saved me from, you know, oh my, my self-sabotage constantly is to remember, wait, 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 wait. He, it doesn't matter. I mean, even sometimes... You know, um, when I was on staff um, and I would go out to these conferences where, where, you know, there were thousands of people there and I sung for years in front of thousands of people. I wasn't nervous anymore, but all of a sudden this thing would attack me and I I would be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget the words. I would go into a full-blown anxiety panic and I, and the Lord would just step in front of me and he would say, I'm, I'll meet you out there. And remember, I'm gasping and grabbing my chest. Mm-hmm. And so I just would sing fully for him. And yeah. it, would, it, it would just completely Gorgeous. eradicate that thing. So it's kind of what you're saying that, you know, just to create, you know, an end to those stories so that they don't just keep regurgitating the same lie back mm-hmm. over and over and over and over in your head. But yeah. Anyway. So good. Um, I'm going to ask you just a couple as we kind of close here. Let me ask you a couple. Um, just give me your thoughts on these. When I bring up your first album you ever did, right? Was it called Beautiful? My first album was self-titled under my maiden name. That was my second Amanda one Falk. that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. A beautiful. Um, what, the beautiful. What's the, f- yeah. What, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about <laughs> that one? <laughs> Oh, she was so precious. That's the thought that comes to mind. She was. She was precious. What about she beautiful? Was so precious. Oh, she was. Well, that was important developmentally, but she was crashing and burning. <laughs> she was. She was. She was crashing and burning, and yeah. Okay. What about in between the now and the then? She was exactly that title. <laughs> I think she. I think she end. was getting to know. She was getting to know herself in a different kind of way, and she was getting to know God in a different kind of way because those things are often related. And yeah, it was, it's like a little. What about Brave New World? Album. Yeah. What about oh, Brave New World? Wow, this is this is quite the. Um, uh Brave New World felt like something clicked into place. So, something that was a Is there a song on that coming. record that you still play? Um, you mean like listen to or like play live? Yeah, like 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 you yourself, not that not uh, not yeah. Um I listened to it actually not too long. I mean, often when I finish something, I pretty much quit listening to it. But Yeah. I've, I've, I have returned to that one. I have listened to that one um, since then. It's been years, but I, I listened to it probably like a few months ago. And it just, and it felt as alive as it did when we made it. Yeah. 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 I love... House on a Hill. I mean, that... So Brave New World felt like starting to crack the code. It felt like something clicked into place as far as like my contemplative journey as a person. Yes. And, okay. And then the art that resulted from it. And so House on a Hill felt like not my own version of the interior castle, but kind kind of like the, it was a soul map. It was like a heart map through all these layers yeah. of, of beliefs and thoughts mm. and things. And it just feels like such 
sacred territory and it's all yeah. very visual language like um yes it evergreen is. and uh-huh. house on a hill and i it just it gave me markers i think for especially for grief it gave markers for grief of like no you're you're right you're in holy territory this is also important yeah oh yeah. i love that what about nova by falcon uh summer i think just felt like summer, summer? It felt like yeah it felt like the result of winter and spring and yeah. all the so it, it sonically felt like summer to me even though it covered you know deep territory but and it I just, I wanted the moniker. I wanted this space to create and to integrate Mm. actually that part of me, you know, it wasn't to split myself. It was actually to just create a space for me to write those kinds of things. And and I still have been writing those kinds of things. And so eventually Mm. I'll release them under that moniker too. And just, I wanted, I wanted to have that space, the both and space. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads us to your new release, State of the State Union. Of the Union. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Um, State of the Union feels like like the public address of Brave New World and House on a Hill. That's what it feels like. It feels awesome. like this is what I'd like to say after the last ten years of this kind of excavation, yeah. I guess. And and it and I mean <clears throat> it's a title that includes, you know, the endings of things, the beginnings of things, the oh, yeah. center of things, the, you know, the loss and the, and the finding of God and all of it. So yeah. to me, it feels like, yeah, if, if there was a statement to be made about Jesus and about the compass of yeah. Jesus and the kindness of Jesus, I wanted to be very um, obvious and clear about it. And it, and it felt like the most natural thing, like I said, about writing what comes to me, what wants to be written. Um, I believe that down to the detail of, of all of the language, every word being selected in a way that feels true. Um, and especially with the name Jesus, I, it's not that I've, I've wanted to be vague about my faith. That's not about my faith tradition and about who I follow and, it's it's that it is so sacred to me that if I'm going to sing about it, I wanted to share it because I knew I wanted to share it from the inside out, not because somebody was hoping that I would or expected me to or thought that I should. Um, and Jesus's name is not a passcode to a social club for me. It's not a way to belong to a certain kind of thing. It's his name is every his name is actually, <laughs> you know, it's everything. Yeah. And, it felt like writing a letter directly to him yeah. and writing stories directly about him. I want to tell you about what yeah. my friend Jesus is like and what he has yeah. said to me at my table. That's rather than me proving something over here by saying his name so that so that the so that people are clear about what I think about Jesus. That wasn't yeah. that wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough for me to to do that, I guess. It was more about like I I never, I always was terrified of evangelism. I was like, I'm such an inverted person. The idea of me walking up to a stranger, like in the in that kind of form of evangelism mm-hmm. that I was, you know, sort of yeah. taught, 
um, was, you know, the idea of like, go up to a stranger and tell them about your faith. <laughs> and uh, right. I'm always amazed at friends who really have that gift of, yep. of cutting yes, through. It and it is such yeah. a gift. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So amazing. Um, and, but I, I just would always sit being like, oh my gosh, if I don't say anything, does that mean that I'm letting God down? And that person, I'll have been the only person that that person will have ever met. This is the only opportunity. It was very fueled and by fear, um, by terror, really, afterlife terror. And that's not a good enough reason. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are a lot of amazing reasons to share Jesus and talk about Jesus, which naturally come up in conversation for me now that I take the pressure of trying to save someone off the table. It's actually about just introducing people to my friend Jesus and letting Jesus yeah. do, the, do the talking. He's really good at speaking for himself. And I want to serve that. I, I don't want to get in the way of that. I want to serve that. And so this, this album just felt like a testament. It felt like a, if I was going to jot down like a gospel, you know, like all of the, the apostles who wrote the gospels, they were jotting the stories down of Jesus. So I can't forget this. Mm -hmm. I don't want to forget this. This is incredible. And like how John right, said at the right. end, you know, he was fantastic with his language of just painting a picture of like no books in the whole world could ever hold all of the layers right, of all the stories all this. of this yeah. man because yeah. he's, he's so, so incredible. I can't find words, you know, this is where I, I stop talking and usually just play the piano, but I'm not going to do that on the podcast. It's that this was kind of my little attempt, I guess, at wanting to jot down who Jesus is, has been to me and Emmanuel and Yahweh and, you know, the, the God who stays. I think it's very, I think it's on the conveyed, and, you know, you, you convey that as a listener, you convey that mm. very, very well in that. It, it feels like a, love letter about this absolutely stunning Christ, mm -hmm. honestly. That's, I think, I'm so endeared to this new record mm -hmm. because of that, because of the tenderness of that. There's a tenderness of, mm -hmm. of a tenderness and introduction to, to him in this that, that I just, that slayed me, you know. And it, I always love things that come out when you're getting ready to release something It's always an excitement for me because I, I love what you do. And I just want you to know that I know that so many people feel the same way. I am affected and personally undone by your inheritance of gratefulness and mm. your, um, yeah, the poetry that is your life and the, the volumes of words that make up your story that, um, all of us that come to the table with your songs find just this, these bits and pieces of the Lord that make up this whole beautiful thing that's why we keep coming back to the table. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just so grateful for that. As, you know, a 55-year-old, you know, whatever title I, I think the church or the world or records have given me, I... I would always just rush back to people like you that are able to talk about the Lord the way that you're able to talk about the Lord and bring me to a place of unraveling just within your, your own communication skills mm. because you make me long for the hymn. 
I don't know if that makes sense, but Mm. you make me long for encounter with Jesus and not Mm. like a religious Jesus. That's, I think that's a gift on you is you don't give away a religious God. You give away a tangible, um, acceptable, uh, absolutely loving, kind God. And I just, I don't think, I think you're great with that. I think you're, that's what Mm. you've, what your music's done. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for your time here. You and I could probably talk about so many different things, so probably won't be the last time you're you're on this. I hope not. I hope not. Podcast. So, but thanks for joining not. me. Thanks for thanks for just talking about this thing. And um, yeah, we could talk for hours about artistry. I know, but I'm just so grateful for your life and for your willingness to suffer and to grieve and to get to the other side of of your season. I think it's amazing. Thanks, Rita. (laughs) All right. Love you. I love you. Thank you.